0: All right. Um, a few years ago when I was the youth pastor, um, I, got a, I, was, I was in my office, I don't know, playing solitaire or something, uh, on Facebook, I don't know, doing something that. No, I was in in-depth Bible study. I was, in, I was locked into really deep prayer. <laughs> such a smart aleck, <laughs> aren't I? Um, and the Claremont Courier calls me up and they say, hey, what are you reading right now? I'm like, ugh. So, like, we like to do an article on you and what you're reading. We're like, what's on your book, you know, what's on your nightstand? I'm like, ugh, the Bible? And, um, but the problem was that, like, that was the easy answer. The tough answer was that I actually had this book that I was reading, which is called A Letter to a Christian Nation by Sam Harris. And he's an atheist. I'm like, ugh, I'm reading an atheist book. And they're like, what? Really? I'm like, yeah, I'm reading a full-blown atheist book. It's like, yeah, I've heard of that book. Why would you want to read that? And it's like, well, it's because um, I need to know what's going on. And the reason why I've been exposed to this book is because there was, a, there was like this surge of the, the new atheist that was, that was coming up. So Sam Harris is one of them. Uh, Christopher Hitchens is another one. He's got the great British accent. And the other one was the God delusion. Uh, I forgot his name. Richard Dawkins, yes. Those two guys got great British accents. Which make, it makes you sound a lot smarter. But Sam Harris is an American. So he's the American guy. And the reason why I was exposed to this book is because the kids in my youth group were reading it. And not only were they reading it, they were convinced by it. And so therefore, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to read this thing. And it's, you know, it's good. It's, it's well, I mean, it's good in the sense that logically it flows. It makes a really good argument against God and the existence of God. And um, uh, I was at a church conference on Monday. Uh, Andy Stanley, he's like a, a seeker-sensitive church growth guy, he actually brought up this very book. He said that this book has done more to undo the American church than any other book. And he says, and this is kind of cool, he says, you have to read it. If you're a pastor, you need to read this book. He says, but here's the problem. Like, some of you, some of you pastors, and there was 2,000 pastors at this conference, he says, some of you pastors, you're going to read this book and you're probably going to lose your faith. Because you don't have a foundation, you don't have a strong, your, your foundation isn't strong enough to, to, to survive this type of critique against the Christian faith. And I was kind of like, man, that's pretty brutal, dude. Why would you say that to a bunch of pastors? But I remember when I read it, it's like, all right, so he's got the typical atheist arguments, you know. If God is real, where is he? If if there's a good God, why do bad things happen to good people? If God is good, why do earthquakes happen in Mexico City? So, you know, there's all these, we've we've been there, we've done it. It's just a regurgitation of the same old arguments that C.S. Lewis argued about. So, um, So intellectually, I was able to at least go through it. And here's the good news. There are incredible men and women of God that are going to war with their minds and they are defuting this stuff. They're a lot smarter than I am and us together, and they are, they're, they're, they're contradicting all the contradictions that atheists come up with. And so there's hope here, and there's, there's really good news that at least there's people that are strong enough in their faith to give a defense of their faith. And so I could at least follow along logically and with reason, but you want to know why my faith wasn't completely rocked when I read this book? It's because I... Yeah, I can reason together. That's good and everything. But even if I reasoned it out, it doesn't mean that I was going to be able to maintain my faith. The reason why I'm preaching to you this morning and I've dedicated my life to the gospel message is because I've had an encounter with God that was real. I actually've had a lot of them. I was really blessed in that area. I've had a lot of divine encounters. Seeing an angel when I was 10 years old followed my dad to the horse corral in the middle of the night. The thing lit up like a Christmas tree. It was so bizarre. I'm rubbing my eyes, and I'm just sitting there for minutes just staring at this thing, trying to figure out what in the world is going on. That messes you up. Um, seeing people get out of wheelchairs and their eyes opening up for they've been blind their entire lives, their ears popping open, and to say, having those encounters, now that messes you up. And it doesn't matter if it's, if it's Sam Harris or Christopher Hitchens or any of these guys that say that God's not good. I know that it's not true because I've experienced a good and loving God. Now this story is important today because it is crucial. This is the one of the things that the enemy of God likes to do when he attacks, when he actually goes after the very nature of God himself, is he will do it. He will take a story, and he will manipulate it and distort it and pervert it so bad that it almost seems to make sense. And this is one of the stories. This is... What Sam Harris goes after in this book is what we're going to be talking about today. And it's going to be tough, and you need to put your thinking caps on, because God can't use dumb Christians these days. You've got to get into the trenches. If your kid comes to you and does not understand this story, that is on you. It's not on me. It's not on your Sunday school teachers. It's on you. And here's the story. You all know it. How many people know the story of Abraham and Isaac? It's a tough one because this is what goes on. God asks Abraham to murder his son. And this guy argues that is the most sadistic, mean, cruel, backward, distorted thing that you could possibly think of. And if we think about it ourselves, it's true. If God asked me to cut my daughter's throat, I'd be like, dude, I don't think I'm worshiping the right God. Right? You see why you can't just surface this thing? Do you see why, like, if you're not, if you don't have a strong foundation in your faith, not only the word of God, but even an experiential relationship with God, how in the world are you going to tell your kids that God is good when you can't explain it yourself? If you cannot defute this book, like, your kids are going to, you're going to lose them. How in the world would a good and loving God, why would he ask his faithful servant to murder his son? When we let um, me lighten it up a little bit, it's pretty heavy, right? Uh, when we oh, it's going to get a little heavier. Then I'll lighten it up. When we look at the ancient world, we know that human sacrifice was just a part of the society. The Aztecs did it. You know, they were always cutting somebody open and rolling their heads off the temple. is gross. Um, in battle, you would sacrifice those that you overcame, you know, your slaves. You would sacrifice them to the gods, appease the gods. It was it's part of what they did. But in Canaan, in um, in the people that Abraham was engaged with, remember we talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, and I told you how bad they were? Okay, well, this is what they did. This is a little bit different than than the most human sacrifices. They would sacrifice their firstborn infant. So they developed this cult of child sacrifice. And it's not because they didn't want the kids. They liked to have lots of kids. No, there was some sick, twisted dimension to it that says if you sacrifice your firstborn, then the gods will bless you with abundance. And we know through the Bible that God is always addressing this cultural element in that society that wants to kill their children so that they can be blessed, to live vicariously through their children. Um, so we know that that's not God's heart. So why in the world would God ask Abraham to do what the pagans are doing? So there's the, there's the question. There is the, this backdrop that he is functioning in this like a really, Horrific human experience, where it's acceptable to throw your baby into the furnace for moloch. It's just, and there's other like that. That's pretty bad, right? This is what Sodom and Gomorrah was doing. They did some other horrible stuff, stuff that is so bad. Again, I don't like. I don't feel comfortable talking about it. And if you've been going to this church for a while, you know I'm not opposed to a little shock and awe from the pulpit every once in a while. And I can't even talk about this stuff. There's stuff in my previous sermons, like I've said really dumb things. I have deleted all of those sermons. (laughs) They're all deleted, all those dumb things that I've ever said. I made sure I deleted them all. Uh, But if you want to know what they are, just ask my wife, because she remembers everything. (laughs) Right? How do they do this? My wife remembers everything that I've ever said. Every dumb thing that I've said goes into some type of a memory bank in her mind. And she's able to pull it up at will. Drives me nuts. I can't even remember how I got into the room half the time or how certain food got inside my mouth. Like, I... But yeah, it was a shocking society. And uh, when you look at it, it's like, yeah, Abraham's just like all the other pagans. He wants to sacrifice his kid to appease the gods. And that is the lie. That is that is the misinformation that these guys seed and they breed. They say, yeah, he's just, he's just sadistic. God is sadistic and he's evil. Why would you want to serve an evil God? Look at him, he's asking his servant to sacrifice his own son. And so this is what we're gonna flesh out because this story This story is the most important story in the Old Testament. We call it the Akedah, the binding and sacrificing of Isaac, the Akedah. You should probably know that word if you've been in church for a significant amount of time because your Jewish friends, they know what that word means. So if you ever heard the word akidah come up again, don't let your eyes glaze over Be an informed, engaged Christian. say, oh yeah, the story of Isaac and Jacob. Because the last thing that we need are more dumb Christians. We need, we need to have engaged Christians that actually know, that know their word and know the culture around them. All right, so let's take your Bibles out. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 22. And we're going to walk through it. Because when people say, how could a good God ask his Servant to cut the throat of his son. The wrong answer is, I don't know. I just trust and believe in God. That's the wrong answer. This story is so important. It is so multifaceted. Not only it is the key pivotal story to the Old Testament, it is the key pivotal story to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And we need to get it. We need to get it. We need to resonate with it. If your kid ever comes up and says, well, I don't really understand what's going on here, you need to be able to bust your Bible out and actually study one chapter of the Old Testament with your kid and explain it to them point by point. All right, here we go. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Oh, man, have you ever been tested? Has your faith ever been put to the test? You're uncomfortable. You're grumpy. You're bored. You have no idea what's going on. There's this, I don't know, you're just being tested. God, unfortunately, this is just the way that he is. And I believe he he tests us because we're free. The reason why he tests us is because I don't necessarily know. He, well, again, God knows the future. I'm not messing around with God's sovereignty, but I don't know if he knows exactly what we're going to do. Uh oh. God's calling Pastor Larry this morning. Nice. Yeah. If your phone rings, I'll mock you publicly. No. The Lord said you're doing good. Okay, so the Lord says I'm doing good. All right. So the Lord's testing Pastor Larry, silencing silencing his phone. That's okay. (laughs) I'm going to do it to you next time. Like the the tests from the Lord, they come. He's going to test your mettle. Like you're a person of faith. You grow up, you're a cultural Christian. That's the worst. Don't be one of those. I would even say, don't even be a Christian. Be a son and a daughter of God. Let's just redefine the relationship here. It's not contractual. It's it's relatable. God God tested Abram. I just hate when God tests this. He said to him, Abraham. And then the, the, the immediate reply, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son your only son. Okay, there's a little problem there, right? Been following along in the series. What's the problem with that? Because he's got another son. Ishmael. There's a paste to this. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. I'm going to ask you to defile your Bibles this morning and underline that word love. Love, whom you love. And you go to the region of Moria and you sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the, mountain, on the mountains I will show you or I'll tell you about. Uh, we believe that it could possibly be the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Uh, some people actually think that this mountain is Golgotha. And if you know your Bible, you know what that means. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and he saddled his donkey and he took with him two of his servants, And his son Isaac. And when they had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up. took three days. Make a note of that. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, underline worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood from the burnt offering and he placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father. Yes, my son, Abraham replied, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abram answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Okay, underline that one too. God will provide. God himself will provide. Interesting statement. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and he arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, "Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there was a thicket. In a thicket, he saw a ram caught in its horns, caught by its horns. When he went over, he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place. The Lord will provide. Underline that. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Now, that's some really good news. You see how deep this story is, and it's probably a little bit deeper than you might think. Abraham is, he gets this test. And here's, here's a great thing about Abraham in, in these stories we actually know who he is. We know his personality. We know his character. We know his quirks and his failings and you know his his problems. We know he's a liar. We know he's a conniver. We know he's a hustler. We know the guy can make some money quickly. We know that he will put it all on the line for a family member. So a lot we know about his personality and his character. We can't say the same about Adam. Adam just blew it, but we don't know nothing about his personality. We don't really know nothing about Noah and his personality. We just know that he built a boat and he was faithful. But we can really understand who Abraham was as a person. And here's another thing about his personality and his character. The guy talked a lot. In fact, the guy talks back to God. He goes into dialogue with God. He even questions God. He even haggles with God. Who does this? Abraham does this. God's going to smoke Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham goes into a haggle with him. Well, God, if there's 60 righteous people, surely you can't do that. If there's 50 righteous people, surely you can't do that. He whittles them all the way down to 10 people. When God presents the promise to Abraham, Abraham is like, how could that possibly be, that God? How about if you use somebody else instead? So we we, we see Abraham, like, get real with God. I think that that's a good trait to have. We need to be able to get real with God. But then, you want to boil it down, you want to be tested, you want to have your metal tested, then we need to act like Abraham does in the Akidai. We need to see what he does in this test, in in this situation. Because does he argue with God? No, he argues and he tries to save a city full of sinners who are sacrificing their own babies and doing other horrible things. No, he wants to save those people, but he doesn't go to war for his kid. What in the world's going on here for somebody that's so mouthy, right? Why is he silent? Now, see, I think that that the silence speaks volumes into the faith of Abraham because he gets the call. He says, yes, Lord, you're testing me. I'm gonna do this thing. And I don't know if you noticed, It's a three-day journey to get to the top of this mountain. And so he is walking this thing out over three days. Numbers are important in the Bible. Three days. Make a a mental note of that. Three days. He takes two servants with him. And he has his son, Isaac, who is, when they're at the foot of the mountain, they're going to carry the wood up to the top. Here's the interesting thing about Isaac. Isaac is, uh, you know, when you're in Sunday school and we do the little flannel board, and Isaac's a little kid, we don't think that he was actually a kid. The Bible says that he's a lad, right? But a lad can be a teenager. So who's carrying the wood? And then the wood's heavy, right? The wood weighs a lot. And he's got to carry it up at the top of the mountain. So we, Isaac was, he was at least strong enough to carry the wood up the mountain, And so not only do we have this submission, this trust that Abraham has, where he doesn't even question God's intentions, right? He doesn't even question God. He just does it. We have his son, Isaac, who is at least strong enough to carry a cord of wood on his back up a mountain, right? And he begins to ask, Questions, where is the lamb? What's going on, dad? Why, why, are we, uh, why are we doing this? And so the stage is all set, right? Why isn't Abraham asking questions? I think it's because his faith has grown. It's matured. It's, uh, there's a trust that he has in God. He knows that his relationship with God is a family relationship rather than a contractional relationship. I need you to think about this. This is really important, especially in our culture. We are in a consumer culture. I notice this in my own life. Whenever I'm uh, even when I'm delving into spiritual things, even though I'm I'm searching things out, I want to study. I go to the Christian bookstore. You know what books I'm attracted to? How to make myself a better person. How to grow spiritually. How to get an advantage and be successful and have God bless me. What do I got to do to get God to bless me? And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with those. We need to better ourselves. That's a part of it, but that's not the game, folks. Like, we don't go into relationship with God to better ourselves. He wants to bless us. He wants to bless you beyond you could possibly imagine. But what he wants to break in us is a consumer-based Christianity that says, what do I get out of this relationship? And you need to think about Abraham and his motivations. If you're along in the series, you know that the dude could make some money. And not only could he make lots of money, like his wife, Sarah, man, she was a fox. Like... Even as an old lady, she ended up in harems. She ended up in the harem of, of, of a pharaoh, and she ended up in a harem of uh, of Amalek, another major king in the area. So, another the thing that we just don't necessarily see, unless you know the context, Abraham was the richest dude around. And in those cultures, if you had a lot of money, guess what else you had a lot of? You had a lot of women. And yeah, there's some issues that he has, right? But if he wanted to, he could have a harem of hot ladies. But you see, his heart's not there, is it? His heart isn't even in the money, even though that he could make the money. Did you catch it? Did you catch the very beginning when we read? What is the most important thing to Abraham? Where is his heart? What does he love? What does he love? He, he loves Isaac. That is where his heart is. This is why Isaac is the pivotal piece to the whole story. Because his heart is dedicated to Isaac. And that's actually a really good thing. But God, this is what God's testing. Like if Abraham was all into materialism and making money, guess what would be tested? If, if Abraham was all into the ladies, guess what would be tested? But what is Abraham into? He is into the love of his only son. Does you see how complicated this now gets, how amazing this story gets? Because God is asking him, I want you to kill your only son, whom you love. All right, why did I ask you to underline the word love in your Bible? Because this is the first time that it is ever mentioned in the Bible. We have gone through uh, at 2000, at least 2,000 years of biblical history in, in 22 chapters. It's quite possibly, our, our, our history with God quite possibly could be a lot older. We have moved from an oral tradition into a written tradition, and this is the very first time that L-O-V-E is mentioned. Isn't that fascinating? The Bible doesn't say that God loved Adam and Eve. God doesn't, the Bible doesn't say that God loved Noah. But no, no, this, this is the very first time when Abraham loved his son. That's when it gets written down. We we need to pay attention to this. We call it uh, the rule of first mention. So whenever something is mentioned or highlighted or brought to light for the very first time, that's, that's the pivotal point. That's what we need to pay attention to. What is this story telling us? And this story of a God that is sadistic and unloving, yet this is the very first time that love is used? What do you think the enemy is trying to do with this story? He's trying to distort it, manipulate it, and make it an ugly thing when it is by far the most beautiful story in the Bible. There are, it's a three-day journey to get there. There are two servants. Interesting little point there. And As they're on their way up to the mountain, he leaves the two servants at the bottom, and Abraham says, We're going to the top, and we are going to worship God. Ready for this one? This is the first time in the entire Bible that the word worship is used. So, the, the big ones, love and worship, this is the first time they're ever mentioned. They go hand in hand. There is a deep relationship between this very concept of worship slash sacrifice and love. He says, no, we are going to go up and we are going to worship together and then we're going to come down. Now, here's the interesting thing about Isaac as they begin to do this journey of worship. So he's hearing what his dad says. He is getting it, I think, because the strapping young man Hauls his wood up to the top of the mountain. And Abraham binds him and puts him on the altar. There's no discussion of a struggle here. And that's intentional. It's because Isaac went willingly. And when you see the character of his life, he's the most passive out of all the patriarchs. Like, this kid just carried a, a cord of firewood up atop of a mountain. Like, he could take the old man if he wanted to, right? Like, there's no struggle. There's no fight. He willingly lays himself down on the altar because he understands what's going on. We've got to pay attention to this. He understands that this act of worship and this act of love, it is, it is an offering. He understands what's going on. Uh, anybody, anybody want to admit to being around in the '70s, around in the Jesus People movement? Remember that? Um, this was very passionate Christians back in those times. There was even there was, a, there, was a, there was a couple. They were so passionate, or at least one guy was passionate. He actually thought that he was hearing from the Lord, and he thought that the Lord was telling him to sacrifice his wife. Yeah, you might be thinking like oh, that'd be a good idea for me to <laughs> sacrifice. <laughs> I'd like to sacrifice my kid right now. It sounds like a great idea. You know? No, this guy did it. He actually, he, he, him and his wife went up the top of Mount Baldy, and he tied her up, and he was going to kill her. And she kicked his butt. And she totally beat him up. Right? Let me get, like, hearing God is a tricky thing. But I guarantee you, like, this story is unique. It was a, it was a two-time thing. It will never happen again. So even though you might want your kids dead, God's not telling you to kill them, okay? Don't deceive yourselves. Now, you see, Isaac could have crawled off that altar if he really wanted to. Crazy, huh? And then the crescendo of the whole thing, the, whole, the climax of the drama, Abraham pulls out this knife, and he's going to cut his son's throat. Oh, my gosh. And the angel of the Lord calls down and stops him. This is a test, folks, right? This is a test. I mean, part of me thinks that Abraham called God's bluff, right? It's kind of a weird way to think about it. I don't, this is where you're going to see a bit of my theology. I'm not quite sure God knew what Abraham was going to do. If God knew what he was going to do, why would he give him such a crazy test to do? No, see, God was testing the soul of a man, the condition of his heart, to love a loving God. And he took him all the way to the line. But here's the thing about Abram's faith that was amazing. Did you guys catch it as they're on their way up the mountain? Hey, Dad, where's the lamb? God will provide. God will provide. Hey, Dad, what's going on? Don't worry, son. God's going to provide. Right? You see it? Um, maybe you've heard this term. Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. This is where we get the term Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh is not accurate. It should be Yahweh Jireh, But that doesn't sound good, does it? That's the right way. That's the right way. Right way. Yahweh Jireh. But Jehovah's Germans made that up. They screwed up the whole thing. Um So Yahweh Yairah, God will provide, God's going to make a way, God's going to come through on this thing, you're going to see son, you're going to see, you're going to be confident. Be confident in our God. God is going to provide, and He keeps repeating this over and over again. God's going to provide. Where is the lamb? God's going to, He's going to provide. God, where is the finances? God's going to provide. God, where is the relationship? God's going to provide. God's going to provide. God's going to provide. This is the mantra we need to have. He's going to provide. Jehovah Jireh. It sounds better. I have to go with that one. Jehovah Jireh. God will provide gonna make a way you see it's an important Old Testament story but it's even a more pivotal story for us as Christians because this is the gospel message he was his only son whom he loved Isaac was the pure sacrifice and he carried his wood he carried his cross to the top of the mountain Jesus carried his cross carried his wood that thing that will sacrifice him to the very top there were two men two witnesses and there were two men that died with Jesus Jesus had a crown of thorns jammed on his head. The sacrifice was caught in a thicket of thorns, and God's provision, his way, was caught, his ram was caught, his head was caught in a bushel of thorns. It's all interconnected. We need to see the mystery and the beauty of this story because it is the story of our Savior, of what God did for us, providing, providing, providing His only begotten Son to worship so that He could actually illustrate to us what it really means to worship. Do you see? I, this is the first time worship is used, and it is used in the most extreme way. And it was the most costly thing in the entire planet, especially for Abraham. It's gonna, for him to worship was going to cost him everything. Here's the point of the whole message. Where is God in your life? Is he number one or is he number two or is he number three? What's more important, the money or is it the relationship? Is it the ladies? Is it the men? Is it your family? How would you like that one? Well, how would you like for God to come to you and say, what's more important, your kids or me? That, you, he has to be number one. We always get hung up on money, right? You always get hung up on tithing and all that kind of stuff. And that's the question that we get, that people try to do workarounds in their mind. They're trying to reason this thing out. Okay, well, I have to give 10%, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess so. So the Bible says. Okay, I've got to give 10%. Well, what if, uh, is that net or is it gross? I'm like, I don't know. I, I, look it up in the Bible. I don't know. It's like in... Uh, it's in Thessalonica somewhere. Just look it up. Well, what if I own a business and uh, what, per, what, do I, what percent do I give that? I'm like, I don't know. They didn't write about this. My favorite is, uh, what if I have a negative income and I'm in debt so bad? What do I give? How can I possibly, what percentage of zero do I give? And see, the thing is, we're just asking all of the wrong questions, The right question is, is God number one in your life? If God is number one in your life, you'll know how to give, and you'll know how to serve, and you're going to know how to believe. Does that make sense? Is he number one in your life, or do you have another idol? If Abraham's problem was money, he would have to take his bank account and sacrifice that on the idol. If his problem was ladies, then he'd have to sacrifice Sarah or something. I don't know. One of his other girlfriends. Who knows? Does that make sense? You see why this story is so important? Because he just loved his son so much. And this is how God loves us. He loves us so much. If I get the band to come to the front, we're wrapping it up. Here's how I know the condition of Abraham's heart. The New Testament tells us. This is in Hebrews 19, or excuse me, 11:19. Abraham reasoned; he thought it out. He uh, went there in his mind, and he knew, in his, excuse me, he knew in his heart. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. You see what Abraham is doing? He is actually believing in the resurrection before he even has a theology for it. He knows that God is faithful and that he will provide. And he knows and he believes in God's promises for his life. So somewhere deep down inside, he knew that God was going to at least raise Isaac from the dead, if not stop his hand. He had that much confidence in God's good character. Isn't that cool? Do you have confidence in God's good character? Is he good enough to step in and provide for you, or do you need to do it by yourself? Hebrews 10:35:36 says it this way: "Do not throw away your confidence. it will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your test for us today. You've tested many of us today. You've tested us in, in where our heart is and where our ambitions lie and what is really important to us. And God, right now, I just pray that you just highlight what, what we need to put on that altar today. Is it, is it money? Is it self? Is it vanity? Is it control? What is it, Lord? What do we need to to offer to you today? What are you calling us out on? And the Word of God says, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is this ultimate sacrifice, that he carried his own cross so that we could be with him forever, that, that, that he willingly laid down his body, that there was no struggle to save us, it was the easiest decision in all the universe to save us. If you want to know that type of God, if you don't want to go into a contractual cost-benefit relationship with a deity, but if you want to go into a relationship with the Heavenly Father, I need you to confess it with your mouth and believe it in your heart.